0: STORY OF THE FRIEND AT THE INN Some years ago, I was travelling to Athens with a dear friend of mine, Philip. We were on foot, taking our time with the journey. We had passed Corinth, and were somewhere in the countryside around Megara. The olive groves were flowering, the sun was shining, and the roads were peaceful. But after several days of walking together, tempers were starting to get frayed, despite our idyllic surroundings. Demos, hold up, I've got another stone in my bloody sandal, complained Philip, stopping by the side of the road to shake out his shoe, a rather cheap, light summer sandal. I'm getting hot, I said, rubbing my neck and squinting against the sun. It was mid-afternoon, but it had been a hot day. Do you think we'll make it as far as Megara today? Maybe, but do we want to? Philip squished his hot foot back into his sandal. "'Didn't you say you have a cousin who lives around here? Could we stay with him?' "'That's true. Yes, I'm sure Aristo would be happy to have us,' I replied. "'His home is a bit small, but he might be able to squeeze us all in just about.' And I gestured towards the four of us, Philip, myself, and our two slaves, Xanthias, Philip's, and Nikeas, mine. "'I believe he has a daughter who may be ready for marriage soon, too.' I attempted a wink, but it went a bit wrong.' and turned into blinking against the sun again. Sounds good, said Philip with a grin. He looked ahead along the road. Look, there's a sign pointing to a taverna just up the road. Let's stop for a drink and cool off, then carry on to your cousins for the evening. I'm not sure, I said slowly. If we're going to impose on Aristotle for dinner, not to mention finding space for all of us to stay, I think we should get ourselves over there earlier rather than later. We should keep on going and rest when we reach his house. ''Oh, come on, I want a drink!'' complained Philip. He looked so grumpy, I gave in, and we headed down a small path that branched off from the main road towards the taverna. The taverna was a small, shabby-looking building half-hidden behind a grove of trees. A few desultory seats were placed outside, but most of the small clientele seemed to be inside in the rather dingy main room, drinking silently. I disliked it immediately.' Though, of course, having not wanted to stop there, I was already in a mood to find fault with it. But it was really helping my case. It smelled funny, too. "'This place is nasty, Philip,' I said. "'The sort of place I'm not convinced they even bother to wash the cups. "'Let's just carry on to Aristos.' "'I am really fed up of walking, and my foot is properly starting to hurt now,' objected Philip, "'pointedly rubbing his foot to demonstrate.' "'I just want to stop for one drink. Come on!' Grumbling, I agreed, and we took a small table as near to the door as possible, with Nikeas and Xanthias standing nearby, hunched against the dirty walls, making faces when they thought we weren't looking. We both ordered a cup of wine. When the server, who appeared to be the owner, brought it over, he looked us up and down in a way that was frankly creepy, taking in our rings, our shoes, and the two slaves trying hard not to touch the wall.' You travelling, gents? he asked, and his breath stank. Yes, from Arcadia to Athens, said Philip cheerfully, before I could send the man away without giving him any personal details. Ah, you don't know the area, then, said the man, or anyone around here. No, I don't, Philip continued, while I tried to kick him under the table to make him stop. I've never been here before. It's a pretty place. He looked at me as if expecting me to mention Aristo but I had no intention of prolonging a conversation with the slimy innkeeper and stayed stubbornly silent. It is, it is, agreed the taverna owner, though his face looked like he didn't approve. He squinted at us. You must be tired, he said, walking all that way. We do rooms as well, why don't you put up here for the night? You can enjoy the local scenery for a little while and start fresh tomorrow. "'No, thank you,' I said as politely as I could. "'I opened my mouth and drew breath to add that my cousin would be taking care of us for the night, "'but before I could speak, Philip talked over me and announced, "'What a good idea!' "'Let's talk about it,' I said through gritted teeth. "'Thank you,' I added to the greasy man in a tone that clearly said, "'Go away.' "'What's the matter with you?' Philip demanded as soon as the man had turned away. You kept saying your cousin doesn't really have room for all of us, so why don't we just stay here? Philip, this place is a shithole, I exclaimed, and I'd like to see Aristo anyway. His place is only a couple of hours' walk away and it's still afternoon. There's no reason we shouldn't carry on. If you're very lucky, you might catch a glimpse of his daughter, I added, trying to sweeten my voice and the deal with it. But Philip had barely heard that last part. "'Couple of hours? Do you know what that will do to my foot?' he objected. "'There's nothing wrong with your foot,' I said. "'Yes, there is. That stupid stone gave me a cramp, "'and I don't think this sandal fits properly,' he said. "'We'll get you new sandals tomorrow,' I told him. "'In the meantime, Nikeus gives a pretty good foot massage. "'How about you let him have a look, "'see if he can get you up and moving again long enough to get to Aristos?' "'Philip sulked, but he couldn't think of a reason to refuse.' "'Fine,' he said, taking off his sandal and holding out his foot for Nikias, "'who bent down and got to work. "'We sat in silence, and I started to gulp down my wine as quickly as possible "'so we could get out of there. "'Things seemed to be going OK for a few minutes, "'but then Philip leant over to grab a bowl of figs from a nearby table. "'The sudden motion knocked Nikeas off balance, "'and he sat down hard on Philip's discarded shoe. "'Hey!' cried Philip, looking up in anger. Watch out for my stuff, you clumsy idiot! And with that, he boxed Nikias in the ears, hard. Hey! I shouted back at him. It wasn't his fault, you hate those shoes anyway, and I'll thank you not to attack my slave, please. Oh, calm down, I haven't hurt him, and I'll pay you if I have, said Philip. That's not the point, I cried. Nykias did nothing wrong, and even if he had, he's my slave, and it's none of your business to punish him. Well, tell your stupid slave not to damage my things. Look at this sandal. And Philip held the item up for inspection. I have to wear this into town before I can buy more. And look at it, it's ruined. He waved it about so roughly that the bent shape of the shoe started to creak and break. Your slave damaged my property and I don't see why I shouldn't discipline him for it since you obviously don't do so often enough. And with that, he hit Nikeas hard across the ribs with the now very broken sandal. I stood up in a state of cold fury now. That's it, I said through clenched teeth. I don't know what's got into you today, but I've had enough. Forget coming with me to Aristos. You can stay here if you like it so much. There isn't room for you anyway. I'm going to see my cousin, who serves good wine. I threw the dregs of my cup in his face, for extra effect. And I'll see you in the Agora in Megara tomorrow evening. Without waiting for a reply, I nodded my head towards Nikeas, who was cradling his bruised side, and we strode out of the door. I saw Xanthias looking miserably at the grimy taverna as we headed out, but I didn't look back to Philip. I walked out without turning around and marched away. Although the evening walk was tiring... Once I got to Aristo's I had a very pleasant evening. He was impressively unflustered at my sudden rather late arrival and happily put me up in his small spare room with Nikeas on the floor at my feet. I even caught a glimpse of his daughter though she was too young for my tastes. After a very pleasant dinner accompanied by much better wine than the taverna's barrel scrapings I retired to my room and settled into Aristo's very comfortable guest bed. Good food and good wine soon sent me into a deep, restful sleep. It must have been well after midnight when I found myself in the grip of a truly unpleasant dream. I have always been lucky that I don't get nightmares very often, but when I do get them I find them particularly disturbing, perhaps because they are so unusual for me, so this one made quite an impression. I had been dreaming quite peacefully of a quiet beach I knew on Cephalonia, Waves lapping up against a shore made up of thousands of tiny white stones and shells. In the dream, the stones were as smooth as sand and I could lay back on them and look up at the sky in contentment. But suddenly, the face of Philip rose up in front of my eyes, blocking the dream sun. He looked terrible and terrifying. His familiar features were contorted by some kind of extreme emotion, perhaps severe panic, fear or even anger. One eye bulged and the skin around it was black, one tooth was missing and there were specks of blood dashed across his cheeks. "'Demos! Demos!' he called out my name and his voice was strained and rasping. "'Save me! Demos, the owner of the taverna, is trying to kill me! "'He's already stolen my money, he wants my rings as well! I've managed to shut him out but the door won't hold! "'You have to come help me! Save me! Save me, Demos!' His face was transparent against my idyllic beach scene, but I could make out the shadow of Xanthias' body slumped against a door behind him and could hear the echoes of someone banging on it from the outside. ''Help me!'' he cried one more time, before I tumbled out of bed in fright and woke up. I had fallen more or less on top of Nikeas, who woke with a start, so by the time we had stumbled out to the main room to see if there was any wine left, the whole household was awake. "'Aristo came to find out what was wrong. "'I have to go, Aristo,' I cried. "'I just had the most awful dream. "'Philip is in terrible trouble. "'That horrible, greasy innkeeper is trying to kill him. "'I have to get back to that taverna and save him.' "'What?' said Aristo, calling for wine from a bleary-eyed slave. "'Why on earth would an innkeeper want to kill your friend?' "'He's trying to steal his rings,' I said, aware as I said it, but this was not the most compelling reason for murder. "'Besides, I think the man's a brute. "'He probably likes killing.' "'Don't be daft,' said Aristo calmly, handing me a cup of wine. "'Don't you think if one of the local innkeepers was a killer, "'we'd know about it?' "'Not necessarily. Not if he targets strangers,' I pointed out, "'though the edge was starting to wear off my panic.' "'Okay, okay,' said Aristo gently. But you said the taverna was a couple of hours away. If he's attacking your friend right now, wouldn't it be too late by the time you got there? I don't know. I shrugged. I could run. He's barred the door for the moment. If it holds out a little longer, I could probably get there. At the very least, I could try. Aristo rubbed his tired eyes and sighed. If you really want to, I won't stop you, of course, he said. But, Demos, I honestly think you're overreacting. It was just a dream. Have you ever dreamed about something anything like anything from real life? I thought for a moment. I once spent all day picking olives, and then spent all night dreaming about picking olives, I offered. That's different, said Aristo. Have you ever dreamed about something that then happened? I mean, last week I dreamed that all my teeth fell out, but look, they're all still there! And he opened his mouth in a big grin to demonstrate, making me laugh despite myself. You're right, I know, I'm being silly, I said. It felt so real, not like any other dream I've had before. I mean, I was having a completely different dream, but he just burst in there. It really felt like it was really him, if you know what I mean. I don't, said Aristo firmly. But I do think you really didn't like that innkeeper, and your imagination is running riot. Now come on, let's get back to bed and let all these guys, he gestured towards Nikeas and his own slaves, get back to bed too. "'All right,' I said with a sigh, getting up, but I still felt uncomfortable. "'Are you sure I shouldn't go back and check on him?' I asked Aristo as he steered me towards the guest room. "'Yes,' said Aristo. "'Absolutely. Now good night.' And with that, he closed the door on Nikeas and myself, and I heard him pad across the main room to his own bedroom. It took me a little while to fall back asleep, but I did eventually. For a while I must have slumbered without dreaming, but that peace did not last. This time I was unaware of any real surroundings. I was in darkness. Not a dark room or a dark place, but simply darkness all around. And the darkness was somehow holding me, as if it was a physical thing. Footsteps started to come towards me. Two sets of footsteps moving awkwardly, almost shuffling. One set of bare feet, and one set with one bare foot and one cheap summer sandal. I turned around. Two figures were stumbling through the void, coming in my direction. The barefoot man walked behind the other. Even before I could make out their faces, I knew who they were. Philip was covered in blood. Blood spattered across his face and up and down his legs. His tunic and his one small sandal were covered in it. But mostly it poured from his throat and it was still pouring even as he moved. The blood just kept flowing and flowing down his side from a gaping wound in his neck. More blood than any one human body could possibly contain and it wouldn't stop. His eye bulged even more around the black and purple bruise, even more teeth were missing and his hair was matted against his head, full of blood and sweat. Behind him, Xanthias' head lolled as he stumbled along, his neck one big blue and green bruise, his eyes and tongue sticking out of his head. I waited for what felt like forever, as they slowly grew closer and closer. Finally, Philip stood right in front of me, so close I could smell the taverna's cheap wine on his breath. "'You didn't come,' he rasped. "'I didn't come,' I replied, tears welling up and flowing unchecked down my face. "'Why didn't you come?' I had no answer for that. "'We waited,' he went on unbearably. "'We held that door for so long, but we couldn't hold it forever, and you didn't come.' I sank to the floor of nothingness and bowed my head, but Philip would not let me escape his accusing eyes. His bloodied hand gripped my hair and forced my head up to look at him. Since you would not help me when I still lived, he growled, you can at least bury my body and help my soul to cross the river. I nodded, his hand still in my hair, pulling it tight. The innkeeper threw my body in a cart and covered it with dung to stop the smell. The driver will reach the gate of Megara this morning. If you ever loved me, catch that cart and give my body the rights it needs. And with that, abruptly, he was gone. And I was awake, sweat soaking through Aristo's best guest sheets. I could not fail my friend again. A tiny part of me wondered if this was really just a dream, if I was racing off to Megara in the middle of the night for no reason like a fool. I hoped that was true, I hoped I would find nothing and that I would meet Philip and Xanthias that evening, lounging around the tavernas of Megara, enjoying their wine and their dancing girls. But there was another part of me, the part that acts without thinking, the part we share with the animals that run from an earthquake before it happens, or the oracles that allow a god to enter their body and work through them. That part knew with absolute certainty that these were not dreams, and that I had lost one of my oldest and closest friends. And so I ran. I ran as I have never run before, or since. I ran like Pheidippides, I ran like Atalanta. I left Nicias behind, he had orders to tell Aristo where I had gone, and I didn't want him to slow me down. I ran and I ran and I ran, and I tried not to think, but just to keep my feet pounding on the rocky road all through the growing dawn. I reached the city gates of Megara early in the morning, the sun still high in the sky. Just outside the gates was another grimy-looking taverna, not much better than the last one, but placed nearer the road. A cart stood by its walls, an ill-fed mule still tethered to it. It was full of dung. Breathing hard, harsh gasps of air, I started towards the cart, and immediately became aware that it was filled with really smelly dung and underneath the dung my desperate lungs could just about make out another smell as well something metallic and something almost meaty I closed my eyes for a moment I wanted to cry but no real tears would come I walked slowly around the side of the cart it was the sandal I saw first the toe of that one cheap summer sandal was just poking out from the bottom of the pile of crap mixed with a bit of hay. Before I could move, a small, dirty little man emerged from the taverna and went red in the face when he saw me. Hey! he shouted. Get away from that cart! At the sound of his yelling, I noticed the guards on the city gate a little way off stand up a little straighter and take notice. What's in it? I asked loudly very loudly. I saw one of the guards start to move towards us. Nothing, cried the driver, going white as a sheet. He glanced over his shoulder, saw the guard headed in our direction, and fled. Stop that man, I yelled, and the guard took off after him. Heedless of the filth and the smell, I used my hands to pull the muck off the dead, very dead body of my friend. Xanthias lay even more pungent beneath him. Sorry, I whispered to both of them, I'm so, so sorry. I could have saved you, I'm sorry. I took another breath, holding up my hand to my mouth, which did no good as it was covered in dung. I will save your souls, I said, I promise. I will at least save your souls. I looked up to see a small crowd gathered around me. To be fair to the owner of this second taverna, while it looked no more appealing than the first, He appeared genuinely horrified by what he saw. Tell the guards to arrest the owner of the taverna in the woods just off the main road, I said to my little group of witnesses. I looked down at the cart and now, finally, the real tears came, hot and wet. Then find me a priest. We have a funeral to arrange. The End Hello, I'm Juliette Harrison. Welcome back to another episode of Creepy Classics. Once again, I've rewritten an ancient ghost story in a modern short story format. And now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the original and how I adapted it. This story is similar to the previous episode about the bathkeeper in one sense, which is that this is real ancient folklore. Uh, It's the Roman equivalent of an urban legend. This is the sort of story that people are telling and retelling and retelling. So far, I found it in two Roman sources. If anybody knows of any other sources that tell this story, please let me know because I'd be really interested to see them. It appears in Cicero's uh, text On Divination, 1.57, and Valerius Maximus's Memorable Deeds and Sayings, 1.7. It's almost identical in both. I think Valerius Maximus probably used Cicero as his source uh, because they are very... They're so close. He's almost repeated Cicero word for word. But Cicero says the story is very well known. So that suggests to me that this is like... It's like the guy with the hook hand who scrapes his way through the roof of the car or the woman hitchhiking at the side of the road. It's one of these stories that was well-known in Roman culture and Roman folklore. I've actually placed my version in Greece. It's set in Greece. It's very specifically set near Megara in Greece. Both Cicero and Valerius Maximus say that. Uh, And you have a sense it's an old story. Um, So I've set it in Greece and populated with Greeks, but the texts we know it from are actually Roman uh, Roman period and indeed Roman texts, Latin texts. So Cicero uh, is pretty well known. Um, one of the most famous Roman writers of all time. Uh, very important in the history of the collapse of the Roman Republic as well. Brilliantly played by David Bamber in the BBC HBO series Rome. I have a personal intense dislike for Cicero. Um, I use him all the time. You, you have to use him. He is a fantastic source of material, of evidence for historians. As a person, I cannot stand the man. (laughs) Drives me insane. Uh, And his writing goes all over the place and he's misogynistic like most Romans. And anyway, on a personal level, I don't like him, but he's brilliantly useful. He is putting this story in this text called On Divination. This is a philosophical dialogue. So patterned after the way Plato writes, but rather than having lots of speakers, this particular dialogue has only two speakers. And Cicero has named the two speakers after his brother Quintus and himself. So you get a much stronger sense than you do from Plato that Cicero has a particular point of view, that he is arguing for a particular belief, or lack of belief in this case. Um, He gives his brother basically this incredibly long uh, text talking about all sorts of different forms of divination, of prophecy telling the future, and why the brother in the text says um, he believes in it and then an uh, equally long bit of text where the speaker Cicero, so his own in his own um, character, explains why it's all a load of rubbish which is interesting for many reasons, not least the fact Cicero was an augur these are the priests whose job it was to interpret prophecies and signs from the gods um, but there's a lot more to get into on that subject than uh, we have time for. Um, the website that I use to access this text called Lacus Curtius has a fantastic summary at the top of the page with the translation of this text saying, uh, summary, he doesn't believe in it, um, which is pretty accurate. So this story appears in Quintus's section of the dialogue. So it's written by Cicero, but the person telling the story in the text is his brother Quintus. And Quintus puts this forward as proof of divination. Cicero has him say this so he can later disagree. Cicero doesn't think dreams can be significant. And it's the dream that is of interest to Quintus when he tells the story. He says um, dreams can be prophetic. And Valerius Maximus includes it in a section on dreams as well. So Valerius Maximus's text, Memorable Deeds and Sayings, is a collection of exemplar. He's writing a little bit later than Cicero, 1st century AD rather than 1st century BC. And he's putting together long lists of examples that people can use for speeches. So if you need an example of a brave woman, you can go to Valerius Maximus's section on brave women and pick one out. If you need an example of a prophecy that came true, you go to that section. And this is the section on dreams that uh, he says revealed the truth, dreams that prophesied something. Uh, It's next to Prodigies and Miracles. So in both cases, the reason they're telling this story actually has nothing to do with ghosts, not directly. It's about divination and prophecy. The ghost is the mechanism for a moment of divination, for somebody finding something out that they couldn't possibly have known by normal means. And divination in the ancient world isn't just about telling the future. It can also be about finding out things you have no way of knowing in the present, like where something's hidden Quite a lot of people asked oracles who the father of a child was, um, who stole something. So it can be things that happened in the past, things going on in the present, but things that they have no way of knowing, obviously not having DNA tests in the ancient world. So that's what both authors are really interested in. The ghost is the mechanism for the divination, but they're more interested in the fact it turns up in a dream and that the dream reveals something that the dreamer couldn't otherwise have known than they are in the idea of a dead person communicating with the living. And in that sense, it doesn't actually matter to either author whether this is the spirit of the dead friend or not. It could be a god sending a dream. It could be a symbolic prophecy that the dreamer's brain is somehow linked up with. Um, He could be putting this kind of prophecy that he's getting into the form of his friend and so on. On the other hand, I mentioned in episode two, when I talked about Achilles and Patroclus, that Roman ghost stories often do involve dreams. The idea that dead souls could access the living through dreams goes back to ancient Egypt, um, where it was thought when you were asleep, you were closer to uh, the place where the dead are. So we can probably assume that they are thinking of this as a ghost. It, It is probably this is the spirit of the man I've called Philip, they don't have names uh, in the story, um, who is able to visit um, his friend through a dream. And of course, we see two different um, instances of Philip's spirit visiting his friend. One of them is a classic crisis apparition. Um, Crisis apparitions are ghosts appearing to people far away at the moment of death or just before or maybe just after this is a really common form of ghost story there are loads of examples of it so the bit where Philip turns up and says help me help me he's killing me it's particularly dramatic crisis apparition crisis apparitions more often just sort of sit there um Wilfred Owen's brother said he saw um Wilfred Owen uh, when he died um just sort of sitting looking at him um So a crisis apparition pleading for help is uh, maybe more a storytelling thing, Um, but that is pretty common. And then the second appearance is extremely common form of ghost story in the ancient world and beyond, uh, which is of course the murder victim asking for vengeance. Um, He wants his friend to avenge his death and in the ancient world he also needs to be buried properly and we've talked about this before. It's incredibly important um, for the body to be properly buried, otherwise the soul can't cross into the underworld uh, and will be restless. So I first came across these stories when I was researching my book on dreams, uh, dreams and dreaming in the Roman Empire, and in my rewriting of the story I've tried to represent genuine ancient attitudes to dreams in the conversation that Demos has with Aristo. Most people in the ancient world thought most dreams were meaningless. Uh, There were dream books, there were books saying, you know, if you dream this, it means this, if you dream this, it means this. And we have one of those from Artemidorus in the second century. So the writers and readers of those books may have thought every dream might have been significant. Those books still exist today. So I think the proportion of people that believed that is about the same as today. There is clearly an audience for those books and people are still writing them, but the vast majority of people would say, no, dreams are meaningless. In the ancient world, they would tend to say most dreams are meaningless. The idea that some dreams might be significant, a god might visit in a dream, a dead person might visit in a dream, or you might have a symbolic dream that means something, that idea was quite prevalent. So they would have considered it possible, or most people, some people wouldn't have believed in any of it, and Cicero doesn't, um, in On Divination, he's quite firm on that. Um, for a lot of people, it would have been a case of thinking some dreams might be significant, most of them aren't. So that's what I've tried to represent with Aristo, and that is a feature of the original story that there is, that is key to this story, And it's the reason that Cicero and Valerius Maximus are both telling it, because they're both talking about how important dreams can be. The fact that um, this is the point that Quintus is making in the Cicero dialogue, and it's the reason Valerius Maximus includes it in his collection of exemplar. The idea is dreams might be significant. And the fact that there is a first dream that the dreamer ignores is crucial because it's saying, beware, don't ignore a significant dream, You know, be aware that a dream might be important. Cicero himself disagrees with that but it's a common story he says so that is at the root of what the story is about. I also included a genuine typical dream from ancient Greece which also has more modern examples of teeth falling out um, that is a common dream across several different cultures and um, so I threw that in there and of course we've seen the need for proper burial again which is a really regular theme. In these stories and ghosts that turn up in dreams are frequently asking to be buried properly. So when I was adapting the story um, the story itself is only a paragraph long so I have obviously expanded it significantly in adapting it. I created an argument between the two friends to explain why they're not staying together. Um, both of the original versions just say one stayed and in one state with a friend or a relative. It could easily be a space issue. There's no explanation. Um, but I decided in the course of expanding it, it's going to be more interesting if they have a fight. So I created an argument between the two so that there's more reasons than just lack of space, that they're staying in different places. And I based that around Slaves and slavery, it's one of those things ancient texts don't always talk about because they don't talk about slaves unless there's some reason to talk about slaves. Uh, Slaves to ancient writers are like tools or pets or furniture. Um, They write about them when they need to. But they would have been around all the time, invisible, in these stories. Um, They wouldn't be mentioned unless there was some need to mention them, but they would always be there. So I threw in a couple of slaves, and I had the argument centre around um, mistreatment of slaves. This is one of those things where every person would be different. Stoics argued you should treat your slaves well. Christians argue you should treat your slaves well. Never argued against slavery as a concept. They thought you should treat them well. Some people thought you should treat slaves well. Some people believed in more of the carrot than the stick. Others less so. And the way ancient writers talk about the training of slaves and indeed women sometimes uh, is often similar to the way modern writers might talk about training dogs or possibly children. Um, But that's why I've represented that in the way they talk and in the conversation they have. You know, it's the sort of conversation that I would have about my dog. (laughs) Don't you discipline my dog? Um, That is genuinely how the ancients often write about slaves in things like Xenophon's Economicus. I've also clearly differentiated between the two characters in how they treat their slaves. I don't think either of my two characters are completely horrendous, but Philip is clearly not quite as nice as Demos. And I've also included a bit of a clue to that in the names. Um, none of these characters were named uh, in the original text, so I had to make up all the names. So um, I went to a few different places. Um, Philip is the name of a character from the ancient Greek textbooks I used when I was in school. Athanasi. aristo is a character from caroline lawrence's roman Mysteries series uh, he is a greek living in um, italy uh, and that name is relatively common anyway it means best demos uh, comes from words for people i might be pronouncing it wrong i don't know how people usually pronounce this when you see things written down all the time you realize that you don't know how to pronounce them. Um, The root of Demosthenes as well, it's a name that appears in Greek plays. The slave names are a clue to the master's personalities. So Xanthias is a very common slave name, particularly in the plays of Aristophanes, and it basically means blondie. Um, It's a reference to fair hair. Greeks presumably dark-haired, sort of tanned skin, would often have slaves from Germania, from n- more northern parts of Europe, who might have blonde or reddish hair. Um, Xanthias is a very common slave name, and it's naming the slave after a physical attribute. So it's, it's basically calling him Blondie. Nikeas is a Greek name that belonged to Athenian citizens, Um, and in particular a general during the Peloponnesian Wars. It's also the name of a slave in another play of Aristophanes. So the guy who doesn't care so much about his slaves, I had call his slave Blondie, and the guy who does have some level of caring about the welfare of his slaves has given his slave a Greek name. Uh, And people did often give slaves the same names that uh, other Greeks had. It varied from person to person again. The slaves themselves are completely silent As they are in the historical record, they're not silent in comic plays. Um, Some of Aristophanes' slaves can be very chatty, uh, but my slaves here, they're not comedy characters, Um, they speak when spoken to. So the fact that I have had them completely silent um, is a deliberate reflection of the state of the historical evidence for slavery. Um, And it's more realistic, you know, it's one thing to write a comic story where you have a chatty, clever slave, but the, the reality is probably quite different. So I had to create the murderous innkeeper. I've sort of tried to base his voice on Thénardier from Les Misérables. Um, that's difficult to do when you're not singing, <laughs> but I tried. I've thrown in a few bits and pieces from mythology more broadly. Loss of a sandal uh, is a relatively common folk and myth motif. Uh, For example, Jason very significantly loses a sandal. I made up the gory descriptions of the ghosts because the original was very brief, um, but I based that on Roman ghost story fashions. So in the Aeneid, um, Hector's ghost appears, looks all gory and horrible. One of my favourite Roman love poems uh, by Propertius, his dead girlfriend appears and she's all rotted and burned. And There was a fashion um, at one point in the Roman Empire Uh, for very gory descriptions of ghosts who look like they did when they just died. I also had lots of weeping. Uh, Epic poetry is full of um, heroes weeping for their dead friends. The two runners I mentioned, Pheidippides and Atalanta, uh, Pheidippides is pseudo-historical He is the guy who supposedly ran very, very fast from Marathon to Sparta to ask the Spartans for help against the Persians at the Battle of Marathon um, without success uh, but giving us the Marathon race um, sometimes known as Pheidippides Atalanta is a mythological heroine who refused to get married until somebody could beat her in a foot race so they're both famous runners. And unfortunately, this has failed the battle test again. <laughs> A brief mention of Atalanta and the daughter. But again, women are completely silent and real women are not named. Now, again, that is partly reflecting the historical record. Megara was not far from Athens and it had some similarities culturally. So I've pretty much made it culturally the same as classical Athens. Um, Women in classical Athens, particularly elite women, were fairly strictly secluded. So I've assumed a certain level of seclusion in Megara. So whereas if you went to dinner with a Roman and he had a daughter nearly ready to get married, you'd probably expect to see the daughter at dinner, even if she didn't talk very much. A Greek, not so much. You just might catch a glimpse of her. She's up in the women's quarters. Classical Greek, this is... Um, So I've assumed that that's similar in Megara. I've also not named her. Um, Ancient Athenian texts, classical Athenian texts, do not name respectable women. They only name not respectable women, uh, foreign women, mythological women. But they don't name respectable Athenian women. You can't be named until your tombstone. Uh, So I've not named the daughter, I've only named the mythological character. So I will try to find more stories with women in them (laughs) playing larger roles. Um, I am a bit restricted by my evidence base on that front. So if you'd like to read the originals for those stories, um, I have a book... um, physical paper copy of Valerius Maximus's memorable deeds and sayings uh, translated into English by Henry John Walker. It's not always easy to find that one online and it's a good translation so if you're interested in Valerius Maximus I'd recommend getting hold of that. For Cicero I use the website Lacus Curtius. Uh, if you just google Lacus Curtius, Lacus Curtius Ancient Rome, you'll find it. It's run by Bill Thayer and it is a fantastic collection of ancient texts uh, both in their original Greek or Latin and translated into English the text the translations are out of copyright, so they are old-fashioned English um, But as long as you can get past that it's a fantastic resource, and I always use that for Cicero. I do have uh, an announcement um, before I sign off uh, 14th of February, so that is in three weeks time I will be doing an event at the Coffin Works in the jewellery quarter in Birmingham, UK, in case anyone's listening to this outside the UK. Uh, so this is an anti-Valentine's evening. I'm going to be telling two more stories. They both have a, an element of, shall we say, heterosexual erotic relationships, and... Um, I'm not sure I'd call them romantic. Nothing ends very well for anybody. So it's really more of an anti-Valentine's thing. It's, you know, are you fed up of Valentine's Day? Do you want to come and hear just how wrong a romantic relationship can go? So two terrible romantic relationship ghost stories, uh, plus short talks and the chance to ask questions um, at the end of my Um, talky bit uh, there will be uh, an opportunity to ask questions directly Um, and these will all be told in the spooky atmosphere of the coffin works in Birmingham Um, so I'm really excited about this I'm really looking forward to it so if you can and if you're anywhere in the area do come and join us tickets are 15 pounds if you go to the website for coffin works Birmingham and go to their page what's on then you'll find the link to book your tickets And I will do my best to have some more women in my next episode. So do join me next month uh, for more Creepy Classics. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It's produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University.